This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. Welcome again to my dining room, still working from home, as we have been for the better part of nine months. And you know, during that part of the pandemic, ladies and gentlemen, a central part of this show, now more than three and a half years old, has been eliminated. What was that central part? Taking this conversation every week into a restaurant in Washington, D.C. or another part of our great country. I did that because I wanted to have conversations in restaurants to highlight what food does to a conversation, how it vastly improves a conversation, how people in this city, where politics is the number one occupation, get a little bit more loose and relaxed and perhaps a bit more honest when they're having a meal and a conversation as opposed to just a conversation. Well, that's been vanquished for nine months and it will remain so for the foreseeable future. But we're going to have a conversation this week about food. And I can't tell you how excited I am to have the guests we're going to have. And if you love food and if you watch programs about food on television, I'm sure you know who this is, Tom Colicchio. Not only is he an eight times James Beard Award winner, he has a restaurant chain, industry, name, Crafted Hospitality. He's got restaurants in Los Angeles, Las Vegas, New York, 17 seasons, Central Judge on Top Chef's show, Top Chef. He also has a brand new podcast called Citizen Chef, and we're going to start our conversation there because part of Tom's life is not just cooking and teaching about cooking, cooking and judging cooking. It's about teaching people about food itself, the politics, the economics around it. Enough of me, Tom. How are you? It's great to have you with us. I'm, I'm great, Major. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, and I'm, you know, my kitchen, the only kitchen I'm cooking in nowadays is the one behind me, uh, the one at home. And uh, you know, I, I get asked all the time, uh, you know, I, I, you know, you're fine. You're home. You know how to cook. And I'm like, at this point, I'm getting so tired of my cooking. I'm desperate to get out. Um, and I'm actually out here on Long Island, two hours from Manhattan. So uh, we, we don't have a whole lot of uh, great options out here in terms of, of like takeout. We have great restaurants out here, but I'm desperate for Thai food right now. Yeah, <laughs> so. I, I, I bet you are. I bet you are. Uh, how are your employees how are your restaurants doing how have you coped during this time 
Well, you know, uh, that answer was a very different in, uh, in July uh, than it is now. Um, you know, I laid off around 470 employees um, in, on March 13th, I think. I think it was actually Friday the 13th. Um, and uh, I knew at the time uh, when I laid uh, everyone off that um, I, I had a, a good uh, understanding from sort of my contacts in, 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 uh, in government that there was going to be a, a pretty robust unemployment program. And so that got most of my, and there was, and that got most of my employees through, you know, $500 a week um, in unemployment. Um, it was maybe slightly less than they were making, but they weren't going out and they weren't spending money. And so everyone was content. And clearly that ran out and it ran out right when, you know, it started to look like we could start opening outdoor dining. And so I hired back a bunch of my employees, not all of them, um, but, but a, a good amount. Um, and, and things were doing okay. Uh, but now with the cold weather, now with the additional restrictions, uh, um, we're, you know, LA's never opened indoor dining um, since right. March. Um, New York, uh, there's additional restrictions. And most likely we're going to see indoor dining close very soon. Um, and uh, so we're, we're back to where we were in March. Um, I have a, you know, a handful of employees left. Um, we've pivoted, we've done takeout, we've done, you know, cooking classes where we're sending food, you know, food boxes to people and I'm, you know, heading up a cooking class. We, we've tried everything. Uh, the fact of the matter is we're doing about 20% of our, our business. And, and, and keep in mind that Q4, where we are right now, this is where restaurants make their money. Right. You know, maybe maybe a, a restaurant on the coast somewhere on the beach, maybe they're making their money in the summer. But the majority of the restaurants make money right now during the holiday season. Uh, Thanksgiving is our biggest day. We're not going to have it this year. Um, Q4 is where we make all of our profit. We kind of lose money in second quarter, first quarter. We kind of do okay second quarter, third quarter, summer for Manhattan. We lose money fourth quarter, we make the majority of our, of our, of our business and more than a quarter's worth of revenue if you were to break it up evenly. So we're, we're struggling right now. So Tom, what are the implications for not just you as a restaurateur, but mom and pop restaurants, people who their entire life's dream is invested into a one restaurant operation? It feels to me as if we are heading toward a crushing reality for them and for the industry if Washington doesn't do something and do something quick. Absolutely. We're, we're looking at an extinction uh, event for restaurants. Uh, estimates are that between 65 to 80 percent of all independent restaurants and independent restaurants are defined as those that are not publicly traded are those that have fewer than 20 locations uh, for a single concept. Um, and so uh, we're looking at an extinction event and, and so many restaurants are not going to get through this. And we're all a lot of restaurants are just hanging on to see what the government will do. And, and unfortunately, right now, uh, you know, the Senate decided that it was best to take a, a uh, a Thanksgiving break as opposed right. to address the needs of the American people. And I know you have been an advocate of a restaurant-specific piece of legislation. What is it? What would it do? And where is it? Sure. Uh, I, I was a founding member, along with a, a bunch of other chefs and restaurateurs, of the Independent Restaurant Coalition. And, uh, uh, you know, early on, our, our single focus was to uh, try to get, uh, you know, the federal government to, to give us assistance. Um, PPP was fine, but it was really just a, a, a stop, stop gap. And uh, uh, that's, that's not going to get us through the other end of this. And so, you know, we, uh, we have the Restaurants Act. 
it was written in the House by um, uh, Congressman Blumenauer from the Portland, Oregon area. Um, in the Senate, it was written by Roger Wicker, a Republican from Mississippi. Uh, currently, we have, I think, 208 uh, co-sponsors in the House. We have 49. We have almost half the Senate co-sponsoring, um, including uh, 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 John Cornyn, a conservative from, from Texas, and Elizabeth Warren, um, uh, a, a very liberal member of, of, of the Senate from Massachusetts, both co-sponsoring the bill. Um, that'll probably never happen um, again. <laughs> again. So we have bipartisan support for this. Um, I'm convinced that if this, and right now our bill is part of the, of the HEROES Act, but I'm convinced that if the House and the Senate voted on this through regular order, um, like we used to, um, you know, like the Schoolhouse Rock right. uh, video taught us all when we were, we were kids, um, it would pass right. easily. Um, and we're, And the argument is this industry, like the airline industry, which gets special carved out federal assistance, needs it, and is, there's a justifying economic and human reason behind it. Yes. Um, and, and I think uh, the difference is we were forced to close. The airlines were never forced to close. We were actually forced to close and, and are continuing. Uh, Chicago just closed. Um, uh, Portland just closed. Again, New York's coming soon. D.C.'s probably coming soon. Um, uh, Minneapolis just closed. Um, and so we're being forced to close our, our restaurants. So that's the difference. The other difference is the airlines, uh, and they can lobby for themselves, but I think they only employ about 595,000 people. Independent restaurants employ 11 million people. And if you factor in the farmers and fishermen and winemakers and cheesemakers and, you know, even the plumbers and the electricians that service our restaurant, uh, we're looking at probably uh, 20 million people. So the whole ecosystem is going to be affected by this. It's not just a bunch of, you know, restaurateurs. And you mentioned a moment ago, extinction event. On the other side of this break, Tom, I want you to explain what that means, because that sounds not only dire to me, but it sounds irreversible. My name is Major Garrett. You're watching and enjoying the takeout. We're going to take a teeny bit of a break from politics. We're going to get into the food conversation, cooking conversation, how to do that in the upcoming Thanksgiving weekend. I am delighted, so enthused to have Tom Colicchio as our guest. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout, back with you for segment two in just a second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. World-renowned restaurateur, chef, 
and activist Tom Kalicki was our special guest. Tom, you said extinction event. Is that irreversible as it sounds? Um, it will be a long time before those restaurants come back. Um, uh, and, and most of those, most of those restaurateurs, uh, probably won't come back. Um, uh, you know, shutting down our restaurants and reopening costs a tremendous amount of capital. Um, just in one of my restaurants alone, Kraft, which is my flagship, and it's not a, a, a large restaurant, um, but it's been open for close to 20 years now. Uh, my carrying cost, uh, my fixed cost for per month is about $40,000. That's before I open the doors. Um, uh, we, we can't, we can't, we've run out of, fun, out of funding to do that. And so, um, you know, I, I hope that my landlords and so far they are working with me, but they're going to have to be my partner here and say, all right, you know, we're going to, if, if I'm closed for two months, I can't pay rent for two months. They're going to have to be okay with that. Uh, and you know, their alternative is to, to evict me. Um, and it's gonna be a long time before somebody else comes in and opens that restaurant. And so, and this is the, this is the issue. So many people say, well, the workers need to be helped. Absolutely. The workers need to be helped. And that's what unemployment was for. But when we get through this, and I actually believe that sometime, you know, in the summer, probably when maybe 60% to 70% of the population is inoculated, um, people are going to come out and you want to have jobs that are available. If, if that's the point where people start op- thinking about opening restaurants, we're talking, you know, months and months before that will happen. But if you have those restaurants in place and people start coming out, we hire people back immediately. The economy gets going. But the economy is not going to get going if no one can get a job because all these businesses have closed. So it's a it's a process. You know, going back to the 2008 recession, uh, it took us five years to get to, to um, where we were sort of hitting our, our projections that we normally would hit pre pre uh, uh, recession. And so it's going to take at least five years to, to, to get there. Do you have any optimism that between now and the end of this calendar year, there will be action in Washington to address this? Well, you know, the, the, the only thing I could think of right now would be, uh, you know, perhaps Mitch McConnell will, will, will take a look at what's going on in Georgia, because one thing I know about Mitch McConnell, he wants to stay in power. And I know we, we weren't going to talk politics in this segment, but I can't I can't help to get back to it. You know, you Mitch go right McConnell ahead. wants to stay in power. And the only way he stays in power is to win both seats in, in, in Atlanta. And if, if it appears that he's just sitting on his hands and doing nothing, good luck with that. And so I, I, I my, my politics are, 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 you know, on the other side. Um, but I, I just think from a strategic standpoint, I, I don't see how Republicans think that, that they're going to possibly hold on to these two seats if they do nothing for the American people. There's a lot of restaurants in Atlanta and a lot of people who work in restaurants in Atlanta. And I don't think it's enough to say, well, this is all going to magically go away and the restaurants can stay open. People aren't going. I'm talking to my, my friends that have restaurants in Atlanta that aren't fast food restaurants and they're, they're desperate as well. So, uh, you know, I'm hoping that maybe politics will, will play a role here. Um, you know, not policy, but politics will play a role here to get this done. Maybe that's the only thing, because otherwise I, I, there just seems to be an indifference to, to helping uh, so many people that are struggling. And, and again, I think we're they're, they're all buoyed by a very false sense of what the stock market is doing. And we all know the stock market is not the economy. It certainly isn't Main Street economy. Talk to my audience a little bit about your podcast, Citizen Chef. What's yeah, the sure. point of it? Yeah. So um, 
You know, it all started a couple of years back. I actually sold, I was a correspondent for a, 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 another network, um, one of their cable channels. Um, <laughs> and uh, I actually pitched this show and it, it never happened um, uh, for various reasons. Uh, but I came on as a correspondent and uh, had been doing a lot of food hits. And it's sort of trying to knit, knit together the idea of, of food policy, sort of what we eat, what we get in the supermarket, uh, the effect it has on people who work uh in food processing plants and farmers and sort of really connecting at the policy because often people don't know that. I mean, even hunger um, for me is really connected to policy. If we had, uh, we can end hunger in this country if we had different policies. And so um, for me, it was, it, was, it was a show I wanted to do and it didn't happen. And, and then after uh, the election, it was kind of 24, you know, seven, that's only the only news people wanted to talk about was the, you know, the, the, the president. And so um, I can relate and, to that. Yeah. And his and his tweets. It's it's kind of sad. There's a lot of other things happening in the world. Um, and so I decided to do it as a podcast. Um, and so we tackle uh, various issues, uh, you know, of, of the day, news of the day through food lens. Now that was our idea, you know, pre-COVID. COVID hit, and the news became COVID. And so we were looking at again, what was happening in, in, in meat processing plants and uh, various farmers that were selling into the restaurant supply chain and had to pivot to get to, you know, directly to consumer. Uh, we also looked at, you know, reparations uh, uh, is, is, is a big topic that we're going to have to come to grips with. And, and um, uh, we actually looked at that through food lens. You know, the idea that we all we all kind of grew up with this idea that that slave freed slaves got 40 acres and a mule. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, Andrew Johnson made sure that didn't happen. Did not happen. And, and so you talk about the food sovereignty and, and talk about building wealth through through land and through farming. Um, so that's a food issue. Um, and so uh, it's, a, 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 again, more topical and news newsworthy, but also through a food lens. And so that's what the show's about. Let me ask you this. Uh, food is quite enjoyable. Food is a gathering place. Food is a place of culture. It's a place of passion. But I wonder, listening to you just now, Tom, if you think there isn't a dimension of it that's also exploitive, exploitive in terms of labor, exploitive in terms of land use, exploitive in terms of processing and creating foodstuffs that are cheaper to make, but not necessarily as nutritious. Is there a dark underbelly that's exploitive about food? Uh Absolutely, one hundred percent. And a good uh, um, example of that is we saw COVID rip through meat processing plants, uh, thousands of people, and we had very powerful groups lobby the government, and you know the president ordered those people back to work. There were no protections for these people, and these are these are people making seven twenty five, seven thirty five an hour. Um, so we can eat you know chicken at a dollar forty nine a pound. Um, and so ab absolutely, uh, it's, 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 uh, farm workers, you know, farm, farm workers, they don't have a minimum wage. They get, they, they get paid by what they pick. Um, and so it's, it's exploitive and, 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 and who are these workers? Undocumented workers. And so we're turning a blind, you know, again, we, you know, the government held a pretty strong line. Um, but, uh, without, um, these workers, these migrant workers who, who are coming in to do the work. Nothing would get picked, uh, you know, and, and that's what we saw. We see this now. A lot of farmers, smaller farmers don't have the clout, uh, you know, during the summer, you know, their tomato fields weren't picked. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're definitely exploiting. Uh, uh, it's definitely exploitive and, and it's all, you know, to keep food cheap as possible. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, what I don't understand is, is, is that just from an economic uh, sort of standpoint, we are, uh, we're, we're an economy that is a consumer based economy. And if you if you put money, more money into people who are struggling, they're going to spend all that. 
So that'll be iterative to, to our economy, right? Um, I mean, Henry Ford said it, you know, when he started his company, if my factory worker can't afford my car, I'm not going to have a business. Right. 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 And, and so, so that's, you know, that's just something where we have to start looking at minimum wage of $15 an hour. You know, every, it just, it, luckily it just passed in Florida. Um, it's like that in New York right now. Um, that's only $31,200 a year. So this idea, well, it shouldn't be you know fifteen dollars an hour across the country because some places like Alabama, Mississippi, that's a big wage. It's thirty one thousand dollars a year, and so if if it was national minimum wage went to fifteen dollars an hour, yes, some restaurants and some businesses would have to raise prices. Um, I think we haven't seen inflation uh, for some time in this country. I think we can get that under control with right monetary policy. Um, so you know, absolutely exploitive. And that goes to the question of not only a living wage, but we've had conversations on this program about actually doing more than saying we value frontline workers, paying them what in COVID-19 reality is hazard pay, because there's a hazard attached to you just doing your job. And those of us who are not out in the world are trying to keep you safe, but we're benefiting from all the hazards you're living with day to day. Well, absolutely. And, and, and there's, a, there's, there's no choice for them. If you're making, you know, minimum wage job bagging groceries, um, your alternative to what, staying home and doing it via Zoom? I don't think so. And, and you're putting yourself in danger. You're putting yourself at risk. You're putting your family at risk. And so we shouldn't have to make a choice between putting food on the table and keeping our family safe. So absolutely. There should be there should be hazard pay involved. That's the voice of Tom Calicchio. We're going to get to food, I promise. <laughs> but you know, it's not it's not hard to get me to get back to politics and policy. I love it so much. Tom will be with us for two more segments for the radio and three more segments for the podcast and CBSN. Back with more with Tom Calicchio in just a second. I'm Major Garrett. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Tom Kalicki is our special guest. He is a world-renowned chef, restaurateur, podcaster, and activist. And we've done a, done a lot on public policy and food-related issues. I want to talk about food itself and the cooking thereof. I've watched a lot of your videos. I've watched the show. I want to go through some basics, Tom, to help my audience know what you know. One theme I hear you say often when you're cooking on a stovetop, particularly low and slow, yeah. not fast and hot. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, some, some foods, uh, you know, something maybe if it's a, a, a chicken cutlet that's pounded really thin that you want fast and quick. But, you know, there are certain things like if you're roasting root vegetables that are cut up into like quarter inch pieces, if, if you use a really, really hot pan, the outside gets cooked. You think about heat penetrating something. All right. Let's, let's use a, a, a turkey since it's Thanksgiving, for example. Okay. If we crank up our oven to 400 you know, degrees, um, the outside of that, tick, that, that turkey is going to start getting cooked. So you're pushing all the juices towards the center. And the outside of this bird is going to get cooked and it's going to actually start to dry out. Um, and, and so by the time the internal temperature hits the desired degrees, you know, 160, 165, whatever you want to cook your turkey to. Um, the outside is probably at, you know, 240, 250, 300 degrees, 
which actually completely dries it out. That's why you end up with, you know, when you're cooking something big, it tends to dry out. And so even in, a, 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 you can on the web find a recipe of mine that wasn't Bon Appetit years back. Um, and I changed the way I, I, I cooked it. I used to start in a high oven and then turn it way down. Now I actually start in a very low oven, 325 degrees, even 300 degrees. Let that cook for a long time in the oven. And then at the very end, crank it up. You end up with a much a, a better bird. And then the other thing I do is I just jam a boatload of butter and herbs under the skin and, and baste it every, every, after the first, you know, half an hour of cooking, I baste it every, every 20 minutes and, uh, and go get that Turkey baster and use it. Good. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's good. And we are roughly the same age and, uh, it will not come as a surprise to you, Tom, for me to tell you that when I was growing up, I heard two things in the large conversation about food, salt and butter are bad. Stay away from them. That's not true. Right? No, no. It's, it's, but you remember uh, that. I mean, the 70s I, well, and 80s, it was all about butter and salt and stay away. They'll give you high blood pressure. They'll give you yes. cholesterol. They'll do all these terrible things to you. And as I've learned, as I've got a little bit into cooking later in life, they're essential. They're not just good. They're essential. Well, they, they are. I mean, listen, if you have high blood pressure, stay away oh, right, from salt. Obviously, if right. you yeah. don't, you're fine. Um, but, you know, butter, you know, animal fat, actually, a certain amount of it is actually good. Um, and it's all the processed fats that are not. I mean, we all said we switched from butter to margarine, which was horrible for you. Um, and then also think about this. I have this argument every time, you know, I, I, I go to my kid's school. Um, I remember a couple of years back, we were touring schools and let's go say, well, you know, we, we do organic this and blah, blah, blah. And I looked, I said, you have skim milk. Why? Low fat milk. Why? So well, we got to get the fat away. Well, they put more sugar in there. They take out the fat and they put in sugar and sugar is worse. So please give me whole milk. I want whole milk for my kids. Um, yeah, there's a whole lot of myths around, you know, fats and, and whatnot. Listen, I think it comes down to this. Everything in moderation. Um, you know, should we stop eating meat altogether? It's going to be hard to do. Let's eat less meat. You know, why it's better for your health. It's better for the environment. But cutting it out, it's just, it's just not going to do it. Um, you know, maybe nowadays I'll try to do, you know, two days a week without, you know, eating, eating meat or putting meat on the table. Or I'll also, you know, we started doing is, is scaling those portions way down. So instead of having a, you know, eight ounce piece of, of meat, how about a, a four ounce piece of meat and more vegetables? So you can still get your meat. Um, and it's, listen, it's also, it's good for your health, but it's really, it's really important that we do this for the environment because, uh, the, the, the effects of, of farming actually contributes to more greenhouse gases uh, than any other, uh, um, you know, occupation out there right now. So, And how about the over-harvesting of the seas? Major problem. Um, you know, right now we're, we're depleting our oceans. We're, we're not giving uh, the fish a break. Uh, I'm a fisherman. I spend, I spend a lot of my time, uh, you know, especially in the summer offshore, um, you know, I'll, I'll harvest one or two fish a year. That's it. I, I release them. Um, and we're just slaughtering our fish and both from, from the commercial harvest and the recreational harvest. Um, you know, when I was, uh, uh, started, uh, fishing, I started fishing when I was seven or eight, but I, I took a break for a bunch of years. But when I was in my twenties, I started fishing, um, for striped bass and we, there were so many. And nowadays it's, it's hard to put a catch together. We're seeing bigger fish, but we're not seeing a lot of fish real, you know, quick little, little story. Uh, so sword fishing, if you remember 20 years ago, there were no swordfish. There was a big campaign that actually started, um, a lot of, had a lot of support from restaurants sort of keep swordfish off the menu. And at the time they found a nursery off the coast of Florida for swordfish. And they completely cleared longliners out of that, that nursery. Swordfish came back. Now they're actually harvesting swordfish again. 
uh, commercial fishermen are catching swordfish on the surface again, which if you're a fisherman, I'm not a commercial fisherman, if you're a recreational fisherman, that's a big deal. Um, and so just by proper stewardship of the oceans, we actually brought the species back. And, and, and we just need to, you know, we need to have better regulation, but this has to be, uh, we have to have cooperation from, from around the world. Because a lot of these fish, they 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 move. They're not they they don't care right. about borders. And so, but absolutely. And then the other problem they have is is fish farms. And so you may think like, well, tuna farm, where they go out and they, they catch all these juvenile tuna and they they slowly bring them into shore. They put them in pens and raise them. But the amount of forage fish that they're killing to feed these tuna are wiping out the forage fish. And so the conversion rate um, between the forage fish and the amount of weight that the the, the the fish put on, it's a negative conversion rate. So we're actually Killing, we're, we're, we're catching protein to bot to create protein, but we're using more protein to create less protein, which just doesn't make sense to me at all. But that's that's what's happening. But the oceans are a mess right now. And then when you consider the amount of plastics that we're putting in the ocean right now, it's it's uh, we're completely destroying the ecosystem. So I want to have a conceptual conversation with you about uh, what the definition of rare is. Oh. Uh, because as I mentioned at the top of the show, we used to do this show every week in a restaurant in Washington, D.C. or somewhere around the country if we were fortunate enough to travel. And we would eat during the show and we would introduce the servers and we'd get to know the owners and it was a celebration. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed in my life that the definition of rare, medium rare and medium seems to have shifted more toward rare. Is that true? Um, you know, As compared to where it was in the 70s and 80s? Possibly. So here's the definition. Rare will have a red, cool center. Okay, It'll be below your, your, your body temperature. So if you take that piece of meat that's rare and you hold it up right under your, your nose, right here, because this is kind of very sensitive, right. um, it should feel cool to the touch, not hot. If it's a warm red center, it's medium rare. If it's a pink hot center, it's medium um, you know, my mother, and I think what happens is people are, you should eat your meat rare. Well, you should eat it the way you like, to tell the truth. Right. Um, if, if you want, you know, your rack of lamb well done, just please don't send it back because it's tough. Um, right. but, but my, my mother got, got a lover. I mean, she, she, you know, she'll go out and she'll say, I want my meat medium rare. And I said, ma, no, you don't. You want it medium. Um, right. every time you see, every time I cook medium rare for you, you say it's undercooked order medium, but um, you know, some restaurants, they just, you know, maybe they get tired of people sending their meat back. So they actually start cooking it more. But I think you have to be specific. If you're asking right. for rare, expect a cool center. If you're asking for medium rare, expect it to be red, but warm. So people who know this show for a long time know that many times when I've had a steak for the show, I've said, I would like it medium plus. <laughs> Which all of my colleagues can't stand. A, because they think it's precious. B, because they think it's excessively specific, meaning I just want it a shade over medium because it feels to me in my taste and texture sensitivity that medium has become closer to medium rare. Is there any validity to someone saying medium plus? Um, you know, it's pretty interesting because this has been a topic on uh, uh, a couple of, of restaurant uh, Twitter uh, sites and <laughs> people say it's ridiculous. I get it. I, I would get hammered, would I not, Tom? Uh, yes, I, I, mercilessly. I, and I've heard it. And, you know, listen, for me, it's, it's just, this is what a good waiter does. A good waiter spends a, a few seconds with you to, to decide to try to understand what you're looking for, and then they can communicate that to the kitchen. Uh, right. the, the best way to do this would be if everyone carried a, a 
a, a portable or small little uh, meat thermometer. Uh, they have meat thermometers now that actually uh, sync up to your smartphone. Um, and then you can tell the chef, I want to cook to, you know, 113 degrees. Right. <laughs> right. I, need, I, need a, I need a meat thermometer or an interpreter slash therapist right. at exactly. every restaurant exactly. I go to. Yeah. That's the voice of Tom yeah. Colicchio. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. We're having a great time. The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today and use code SIZZLE2020 at checkout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Tom Kalicki was our special guest. There's a million questions. I'm not going to get to all of them, but let's go through some basics. Um, I've heard you say this many times, Tom. Knife work is important. What is it and why does it matter? Well, knife work is important if you're a professional chef, obviously. Uh, the faster you can you can use a knife, the faster you're going to get your, your, your prep work done, uh, the more time you're going to have to, to spend. Now, at home, I think it's also important because if, if you're fast with a knife, you can, again, you can get your prep work done a lot sooner. I mean, I can I can... You know, put together dinner very quickly because I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, you know, with a knife in my hand. So it's, and it's a, an adult knife is more dangerous than a sharp knife. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. If you're cutting through something, if it's if it's dull, you have to put more pressure on it. And especially if you're cutting something that is not 100 percent stable, meaning it doesn't have two flat ends on it. it the knife has a tendency of, you know, when you're pushing it, it'll it'll it'll, you know, just kind of slightly, slightly sort of turn. And usually that's when you cut yourself. And how do you best sharpen knives at home? Uh, the best thing to do is an, a knife will come, you know, fairly sharp when you buy it. Get a sharpening steel. It's a, that big spiky looking thing. And every time you use the knife, just run it at a 45 degree angle on both sides. Um, you know, just, just to sh- what happens if you look under a, a microscope at, a, at the blade of a knife, there are teeth in it. Even though it appears to be smooth, there are tiny little teeth. And what happens when you cut, those tiny little teeth get bent. And so that steel aligns them and sharpens them. But eventually uh, you're going to have to either use a sharpening stone. Uh, you know, a, a good Japanese whetstone is, is the way to go. Um, and, and again, at a 45 degree angle, just work the knife. If not, there's a couple of, of good services out there. I've seen one recently advertised. I don't know the name, um, but uh, uh, you can do it online. They'll come and pick up your knives. They'll sharpen them and they'll bring them back to you. Actually, I think you send them in. You mail them in. They'll mail them back to you. But uh, sometimes it's just it's just past. The, I'm, I'm, I got a knife full, a, a drawer full of really dull knives right now. I'm just <laughs> it's, yeah, I'm the patience for it, but I'm getting ready to send some out. Another, another point. You don't need a gizmo. You can just use that thing to sharpen your knife, yeah, right? You, yeah, don't, yeah. You, don't, you don't need a contraption. No, you don't. No, that's the best. The, a steel is the best way to go. Okay. So I've also, in watching the videos, uh, come to understand this concept that you talk about a lot, which is temperature transfer, meaning you put something cold in a skillet. There's got to be a time required for the temperature transfer, the temperature equalization. Two questions. Explain that concept. Question one. Question two. I have read and begun to practice this. I try to cook my meat at room temperature. Good oh, idea? Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, it, it'll cook uh, quickly. And also, it'll cook a little faster so you're, you're not spending... You, the, the, when, you, when you sear a piece of meat, when it turns brown, it, it's not caramelization. That's what we're all led to believe. It's something called a mylar reaction, uh, which is a little different. Um, and, and that could happen on low heat or high heat. Um, and so... If, if you're cutting, you know, cooking a, a, you know, maybe a steak that's like an inch and a half thick, um, if you put it in a really hot pan, again, the outside's going to get tough 
Um, if you if you do it at a lower temperature, again, it's, it's a little gentle cooking. It's not going to get as tough. You're still going to get the browning on it. Um, it's just, it takes a little patience though. Now, the heat transfer piece, um, think about it this way. And, and I, I kind of intuitively, had, I guess I've always done this. And then when I was writing my first cookbook, um, Think Like a Chef, the woman who was working with me testing all the recipes, she saw me doing this and asked me what I was doing. And I was like, well, just putting vegetables in a pan. And she said, no, there's something you're doing here. And I thought about it. So what I was making was a root vegetable soup. And I had a bunch of different root vegetables cut up. And I had a, a, a sauce pot, you know, uh, you know, I don't know how, how many quarts it was, but you know, the, the opening was, was pretty wide. And it was, you know, we, call, we like to refer to it as a rondeau. Um, and I had some oil in the pan and I added some of the vegetables. And I had the vegetables all mixed up and they're all cut into, you know, slices or whatever. And I was adding the vegetables and I'd wait and I'd add some more and I'd wait and I would add some more. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm listening to the, to the pan. She said, well, explain that. I said, pan's on, it's got a medium heat. You put the vegetables in, they start sizzling. Now, when I put something, when you put something in the pan without changing the, 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 the flame, it's gonna drop the temperature in that pan because there's a heat transfer that comes from, the energy comes from that pan into the vegetable. So the vegetables absorb that energy. Right. And so the temperature is going to drop now because I'm not changing the temperature, uh, the, the, the gas setting. Eventually, the equilibrium is going to come back up and it's going to it's going to get to that same temperature and then it's going to start cooking even more. So then when I hear it, because you can listen to it, when it gets to a certain point, it starts to sputter louder. Time to add more vegetables. Now, if you were to take all those vegetables and this is what people do, and I've seen this, dump them into that at one time, the temperature is going to really drop and then it's going to start to steam. And you're going to end up with really mushy vegetables. And this way, you just kind of add things a little at a time, keep stirring, keep adding. And then eventually everything is in the pan and then they're all, it's all sizzling nicely and you end up with you know, beautifully cooked vegetables. And so that's, that's kind of that concept. How are you thinking with your family about Thanksgiving this week to come? Yeah, so um, I have uh, a, a, my media families, my wife and I, our two children, nine and 11. Um, I have another son who is 27. Um, and there was some talk about not having him come here. Um, typically we have a lot more people over. Uh, my sister-in-law usually comes over and so we're not doing that this year. Um, but my son, um, he, uh, he bartends, he's in school, but he, he bartends and, uh, his last day, and I know this isn't scientific, but this is the best that we're going to do. Um, his last day is Thursday today. Um, and he's going to get a rapid test. I know they're not 100 percent accurate. I can hear people now, like you know, yelling. Um, and then he's going to quarantine, and I'm going to pick him up probably Wednesday night. Okay. Uh, and and uh, his his girlfriend who he lives with is no is is hasn't is not going to the office. And I know my son from day one. Uh, he, when he goes to work, he wears two masks. Um, he's been really really safe. He's also bartending, but there's no one sitting at his bar. That's not allowed right now. Um, He's been really safe. That's the, that's the, that's what I'm going to do, but that's it. That's we're limiting it to that. And, uh, um, not traveling. My mother, um, is going to my older brother's house and I'm, I had a conversation with him last night to ask him not to do that. Um, I'm desperate to see my mother, but my kids are, are in school out here and they're actually in person. And the last thing I want to do is have my, my 82 year old mother who has COPD, uh, come down with COVID. So we're really trying to, to, to keep her safe, but, uh, she may go to my brother's and he claims they'll all wear masks at, you know, dinner table or, uh, so we'll see. And 45 seconds, uh, your top two or three tips to avoid a bad Turkey and get a good one. 
number one, get a good turkey, get a fresh turkey, not a, not a frozen one. Um, the better turkeys are heritage birds. Uh, I have not, no ownership at all on this site, but D'Artagnan, which is a great food supplier of ours, they have great turkeys, um, a heritage bird. Get that, cook it slow, um, internal temperature. Uh, you want to get it to 165, which means you want to take it out of the oven when it's at about 158. It will continue to cook once it comes out of the oven. It's called carryover cooking. Um, baste the bird frequently. Let it rest before you cut it. You know, I always always thought, like, how do you get this beautiful Norman Rockwell photo? You know, you never see that. And I started saying, well, of course, when the turkey comes out of the oven, I put a trivet on the table and I let it rest at the table. You don't have to tent it or anything. It's going to hold that temperature. Let it rest. If you're going to cook your turkey to 165 degrees and it's a, you know, 15 pound, 18 pound bird, let it rest for a half an hour before you cut it. Excellent. That's the voice of Tom Colicchio for our radio audience. We're going to have to say farewell, but for the podcast and CBSN, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Have a great Thanksgiving week, and we'll see you next week. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Tom Colicchio is our special guest. You know him from Top Chef on the Bravo Network. You possibly know him from the eight James Beard Awards he has won, maybe from his podcast, Citizen Chef. He's a fabulous guest to have to talk about food and all things around food. Uh, Tom, as I said earlier, the show has been going more than three and a half years. Every single guest has taken these three questions. Take them in whichever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life, favorite movie, or all time, or one of your favorite movies, and if you're going to indulge yourself musically, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Yeah, so these are these are easy. Um, okay. uh, Jacques Pepin, <laughs> La Technique. Um, when I was a a a 15 year old cooking at home, um, my dad at one point suggested I become a chef, which was kind of interesting because my dad wasn't the kind of dad that had long you know conversations. Uh, with his kids, except all three of his children found what they love to do. And, um, and maybe because <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't a big fan of where he worked. And I'll get to that in a second. Um, but um, one day he came home with a bunch of cookbooks and he, he said he got them from his, his, his works library. Uh, and one of those books was La Technique by, by Jacques Pepin. And at the time um, I, I, I would have been diagnosed with ADHD uh, if they were making diagnosis back then. Right. All three of my children have been clinically diagnosed. They had psych evaluations, um, I have this, a lot of the same issues. Um, when I was a kid, I, you know, was one of those, you know, your, your IQs off the charts, but you're doing, you know, C-level work and you're, you're, I was in Catholic school. You're lazy. Um, you're just a cut up. Uh, now I know why I was, um, I, I was deflecting because I was having trouble with certain things. Um, but I had a hard time reading through recipes. Um, and focusing on what they were trying to tell me to do. And, you know, you get a recipe that said, get a lamb shoulder and bone it out or have a butcher do it and have them tie it and, uh, you know, sear it in a quarter cup of oil in a large roasting pan uh, um, on all four sides, remove it, add uh, 
carrot, celery, onion, leek uh, cut up to quarter inch pieces and brown those and then add the lamb back and add a quarter cup of uh, our, our cup of red wine and, you know, four cups of chicken stock and add a bouquet garni, whatever that was, and some garlic cloves and uh, put it, uh, you know, in the oven slightly, you know, uh, with the lid slightly off and, uh, you know, for three hours. Well, damn, they could have just had braised the lamb shoulder, right? Because uh, that's all that is. And I'd read through this thing instantly. <laughs> And then comes this book that my, my dad brings home from the library. And again, this is what was interesting because my dad was a correction officer in a county jail. So I, I don't know why this book, La Technique, was doing in a, in a jail, you know, library in, in a county jail. Um, and so, but the book changed my life because Jacques uh, stressed the importance of, of technique and methods, not so much recipes. And that completely freed me up and that gave me something to really focus on. And so uh, that, that, that book just completely changed my life. And I've got to know Jacques over the years and he knows the story and uh, um, he's just, he's a fantastic guy. Um, uh, number two, um, Harold and Maude. Uh, great movie. Just, great just movie. love, just love the movie. Uh, it's just a wacky, crazy story. That's just appeals to me for some reason. Um, uh, the second would probably be uh, Godfather two and one in that order. Um, mm -hmm. Understood. Um, but uh, so that's that. Um, uh, number three, music. I play guitar. I have a few of them. I don't know if you can see the one behind me right now. It's somewhere mm -hmm. back there. Um, but um, uh, I, I love listening to finger picking blues. Uh, Yorma Kalkinen, uh, David Bromberg are, are two of my favorites. Um, uh, Yorma Kalkinen from the Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna, uh, who my, my wife once finagled uh, 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 guitar lessons from him, you know, which was really cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's something about, you know, that syncopated rhythm, you know, going back to, uh, you know, Sunhouse and all those, uh, great, uh, early musicians that played that style. Um, Reverend Gary Davis Jr. Um, you know, and so many just, just, just great players. And, and for me, it, there's something about it where you're hearing, you know, it sounds like the guitar, it sounds like three people are playing a guitar and trying to, trying to get that. And it's something that I've, I've been focusing on, but it's something I'll always I've left, love to listen to. Um, but that said, uh, the new Springsteen album uh, is, is fantastic. When I first listened to it, I was like, yeah, okay, there is a song, if I were a priest on it, that is so damn good. Um, I think it's one of the, his, his best written songs in a long time. And I'm, I'm a huge fan. Um, and if I had to answer one more question that people ask me all the time, what's the first thing you want to do when this is over? Live music. And give yeah. me, give me a four hour Springsteen show. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, I want to be in a pit hugging people <laughs> listening to live music. I hear you. I hear you. So, uh, I've listened to you talk to contestants and chefs and amateurs and say, look, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. Your emotions matter in all this. So I want to ask you a variation of a question I once got because someone asked me, well, you spent a lot of time in Washington, mm -hmm. the movie, uh, National Treasure, documentary or mostly documentary? And I got a good laugh out of that. So I'll rephrase the question. Like water for chocolate, documentary or mostly documentary? Oh, <laughs> In no, the sense that mostly not. No, mostly. It's a beautiful story um, yeah, about about the emotional connection yeah. to food as you're making it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, not, not documentary. Um, uh, it, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's partially. I, I know. I know. I know. I know what you're getting at. Um, clearly that a documentary. Uh, it's a narrative <laughs> feature. Um, but uh, um, um, <laughs> no, no, I, I, I think listen, emo emotions are important uh, and passion is important. Um, uh, you know, my, my, what I try to, to tell younger chefs is it, it, it's great to work under people 
and it's great to sort of get a, a great background and it's great to even look at some people and, and put them on a pedestal. And, and but this, if you have someone on a pedestal, you're never going to get there. So at a certain point, you got to say, you know, what? I'm going to find my own way. There's a, a few chefs that that I've worked with over the years that that that, you know, meant a lot to me. And, and, you know, I would, I would see myself starting to emulate them, but at a certain point, you got to cut those strings and you got to find something that is uniquely yours, your style. And I think right now with the internet, you know, I, I started cooking before internet. So if you wanted to see someone cook, you had to go to the restaurant. If I wanted to go see what Michel Bra was doing, someone who through reading really appealed to me what he was doing, I had to go to his restaurant. I ended up working in his restaurant, but I had to go there. Um, I couldn't just go on the internet and, and see something. And so even more importantly is this, is find your own way, find your own voice, um, because that's when you become unique and that's when you become successful. There's a lot of, that, good, a lot of good cooks out there. And I use cooks and not chef. Chef means boss. That means you're running a kitchen. A lot of really <laughs> good cooks out there, um, but, but it's not until they find their own unique style and something that they're going to say and something that's different and not for the sake of being different because it's something that's inside of them, that's when you're going to be successful. That's the voice of Tom Colicchio. Man, what a great hour this has been for me. Uh, thank you so much for indulging uh, this political nerd in a conversation about food. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Thanks for your expertise. Have a great Thanksgiving thank, with yeah, you and your you. family you in whatever way yeah. you can. This, is, this has and been I, great. It's a, an hour went by very quickly. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, thanks. Great, great talking to you, and have a great Thanksgiving. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week, everybody. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.